For me, when I wrote the book, the extraordinary thing I didn't realize when I was actually researching the story of Bakhova was actually I was also researching the story of modern Israel. Because in the, 20, in the 18th, 19th, 20th centuries, he becomes a figure of hope used by Zionists and Jewish nationalists in their hope to build a new Jewish state. An excerpt from today's guest, whose latest book details the Roman era Second Jewish War. Author Lindsay Powell is here, and I'll speak with him right after this break. I'm Robert Child, and this is Point of the Spear. Welcome back. Today, it's all about ancient Rome, and my guest writes for Ancient History and Ancient Warfare magazine. His articles have also appeared in Military Heritage and Strategy and Tactics. His appearances include BBC Radio, British Forces Broadcasting Service, History Channel, and History Hit. His latest book is Bar Kokhba, the Jew who defied Hadrian and challenged the might of Rome. And author Lindsay Powell joins us now. Lindsay, welcome to the show. It's a great honor. Thank you for having me on the show. Well, we're very happy to have you, sir. I know this has been coming for a long time. (laughs) (laughs) This is ancient history, obviously. So set the stage for our listeners. What was the second Jewish war? Uh, It was the next one after the first one, which is well better known. Um, So if, if I just simply say we're talking Roman Empire, we're talking the first going into the second century B.C., that the person that is, is the center of the activity is the Emperor Hadrian, who is famous for the wall in northern Britain, which actually this year is celebrating 1900 years since it was actually built. Mm. So it's very topical. Um, I, I jested slightly when I was saying that it was the second because it followed the first. But the first one was important. Uh, the, the first one, which happened between 66 and 70, is the one that everybody's heard of because it ends in Masada. And Masada happens around about 73. But in the meantime, in 70... Vespasian and his son Titus destroy the temple on the mount. Mm. And this is a catastrophe in, in Jewish tradition because that basically is the place where, where Jews have the ceremonial aspect of the religion and have all the ceremonies, have the, 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 the sacrifices. It's where the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they do their thing. It's what we know from the New Testament. That's, that's really that world. At the end of the first world, first Jewish war, all of that changes because the temple culture has been obliterated. There, there is nothing there. It's a ruin. Mm. And the, the Romans basically decide that, you know what, it never will, never will arise again. It, it's left effectively for many, many years as a ruin. And the victors, the, the empire um, uh, that was at that time ruled by a group of people called the Flavians. Mm. Uh, Vespasian is the famous one. Titus is famous. And between them, they both built the Colosseum, which was partly, by the way, funded from the spoils from the first Jewish war. Um, that they made a point of really showing that they had actually done the Roman world a really great thing by actually solving the Jewish question, in a sense. So we move on to the Emperor Hadrian, which is something uh, we're talking now 117, uh, uh, so that's several years after uh, the, 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 the Flavians. And the relationship between Jews and Romans has changed a little bit. So there was this terrible catastrophe that happened within Judea. And, and, and for that time, it seems to have gone pretty quiet. However, in the intervening years, there were uprisings of Jewish communities right across the Mediterranean, mm-hmm. even going into what was at that time the Parthian Empire. Um, and actually, the, the, the Romans were actually in around the 106-107 uh, period, uh, expanding under the Emperor Trajan. He's, he's the famous man who built the column in, in Rome. Mm-hmm. Uh, the column actually celebrates the Dacian War. He, he won that war and decided to turn his attention eastwards towards trying to conquer the Parthians. Uh, and he succeeded by taking Babylonia, Armenia, 
uh, Mesopotamians from other pro provinces. And at that point, it was the biggest in, in, in Roman history. It, it, it was at the zenith of its power. And when he dies mysteriously, kind of on his way back, uh, was it murder? We're not quite sure. But the point is his successor is his ward, who's Hadrian. And in the, in the run-up to that, there is this big blow-up of, of the Jewish communities, which is often called the Kitos War. And it takes in places like Cyrene, uh, Egypt. It takes in, for example, um, Cyprus and even parts of North Africa. But it doesn't appear yet to actually include Judea. That is brutally crushed by the Roman authorities. Mm -hmm. And what, what, it, what it really shows is that, that there's still the sense of injustice amongst Jewish communities and the way they're being treated at the hands of um, actually mainly Greek Romans, as it turns out. Latin Romans made and had some sort of problem, but, but Greek-speaking communities, think of Alexandria, had a particular chip on the shoulder about, with, with these monotheistic uh, Jews who actually observed these strange holidays and would actually take the Saturday off, the Shabbat off, the very day that they were only doing things. And they always felt the Jews never really kind of were part of them. They always mm -hmm. wanted to be different. And, and in a sense, that's kind of right, that, that the Jews are, are different in, in the sense that by, by assuming that the, the moniker of the chosen people, I mean, this sort of kind of fits into that narrative. Uh, unfortunately, they, they found in Hadrian somebody who wanted to do something with Jerusalem and a Jerusalem, which had been a ruin pretty much at that point, had even become an army camp. Mm. The 10th Legion, um, the, the Fratensis, which had actually been part of the destruction of the city, had actually set up its camp in the middle of the city, as far as we can work out. We don't actually know precisely, but that's what the evidence is to point to. And in fact, on the, on the south side of the city, they even had a brick factory. Mm -hmm. so, so it was turning into sort of like a military supply dump with, with, with housing for troops. And along comes Hadrian in, in 117, who is actually now the new emperor who's taken over from Trajan, the great conqueror. And he starts to unwind from some of these conquests. His focus is much more internal affairs. He decides that there's, uh, there's a number of brewing concerns that he needs to fix. And, and, and one of the things he seems not to have a sense about is the Jewish antagonisms. Um, and what he actually decides to do is rebuild Jerusalem. And the Jews get very excited by this because they think, oh, we've heard that there's rumors that they're going to rebuild the temple. And it turns out that's not at all what's going to happen. He's actually going to build it as what's called a colonia which is a, a, um, a, a very specific kind of Roman city, which is like a little replica of Rome with all its political structures. And mm -hmm. it has a temple to the three Capitoline gods, but it's also populated by retired soldiers. So it's very Roman in character, not at all Jewish. Mm -hmm. And this creates an outrage because effectively what, what, what they're planning to do is sit from what we seem to actually be able to pick out from this is not to rebuild the temple at all, but actually to put a temple of Jupiter actually on the mount. Oh. So it seems to be that, that this may be one of the causes and wrapped up into this whole uh, series of misjudgments. There is, uh, there is a suggestion that Hadrian banned circumcision, which, of course, is a very significant thing. That's a, uh, that this is the Brit uh, Mila, uh, which is the, one of the cardinal rules of Judaism that should be circumcised. Um, and, and because um, it, it seems to particularly focus on the Jewish committee, that, that obviously was a source of pain and outrage. There, there was uh, rules and regulations brought in, we're told, which banned study of Torah so that you couldn't study the books of Moses. So if you were Jewish at the first, in the first years of, of Hadrian's reign, you might think you were being picked on. Um, and there does seem to have been a, a number of things, but, but the conclusion I come to in the book, it's mainly the issue of Jerusalem. And in fact, what evidence we have from archaeology suggests that not only was it going to happen, but it was already happening. So when, when, when actually in AD 130, Hadrian actually visits on a grand state tour because he's a believer in management by wandering around. Mm -hmm. um, so he literally does these grand tours. He takes his entourage of his Praetorian troops and family members and officials and adjutants. 
Um, and everywhere he's going, he's building things. He's giving bags of money to people say, go build yourself a, a library, go build yourself a theater, a hippodrome, have one of me. Um, and, and these are the big plans for Jerusalem. But, but unfortunately, it's done in such a way which is really quite offensive to the, 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 the population of Judea. We have coins which were minted. The, the, the Jews actually took Roman coins and in an act of defiance, they literally overstruck them. So the head of the Caesar mm-hmm. was, was hit with, for example, like palm leaves or, or, or sort of like a lyre or sort of religious instruments and iconography as a point to be able to say, we are turning this into a Jewish state ruled by rules of Torah. Um, and they do this very consciously. And the result is it, it, it's a functioning Jewish community. It, ha- it has a hierarchy. It has offices. It has governors and it has uh, officials in towns. We actually know the names of some of these people uh, because they're trading in buildings and they're renting buildings from each other and they're doing d- business deals and all this sort of stuff. And, and very m- unlike many wars that we learn about the ancient world, which are usually written by the victory side, right. which gives you some kind of account of it and often very very uh devoid of details you can't really reconstruct it what's fascinating about this one is between the archaeology and the various sources you can make a reasonably good attempt pulling this all together and actually understanding why it happened how it ended and more importantly the consequences and for me when i wrote the book the extraordinary thing i didn't realize when i was actually researching the story of bachova was actually i was also researching the story of modern israel because in the, 20, in the 18th, 19th, 20th centuries, he becomes a figure of hope used by Zionists mm-hmm. and Jewish nationalists in their hope to build a new Jewish state. And in fact, uh, there are Bar Kokhba army resistance units are set up. There's Bar Kokhba sports vereine. So there are associations that play athletics and soccer and all sorts of stuff to try and build up the sense of confidence in the Jewish community, which, if you remember, in 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 Russia and Ukraine, interestingly mm-hmm. enough, um, in Hungary and and and, and yeah, all over the Eastern European uh, part of Europe, uh, are suffering very badly through pogroms and this sort of thing. And they turn around and they say, "We can be strong people too. We can be the muscular Jew." And in fact, that's part of a narrative. And um, the Bar Kokhba story, the man, the strong warrior, is built up in a sense. They 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 forget the fact it failed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And they actually go back the three years beforehand and actually make the point that, but for three and a half years, it worked. Um, and I just find that absolutely fascinating that, that how history intersects with modern times. I hope you're enjoying this episode. Next time, author Walt Larimore will be here with an incredible World War II story in his new book, At First Light. Yeah, you know, my brothers and I growing up knew that he had been a soldier. We knew that he lost his leg in the war. And so, boy, he started pouring out these stories and... Quite frankly, I don't know that my brothers and I believed him, but then when he passed away, we found uh, his military chest with 450 letters, three history books, his awards, signed autograph pictures from everyone from General Eisenhower to True Scott to Young to McGar, and then began to put together, I think you're right, what is truly an incredible story. That's next time. From what I read, Shimon had built up quite a reputation as almost superhuman based on his feats in battle. Could you talk about that? Well, and this is interesting because you see, this is where in the Jewish tradition, there's a figure called the Gibor. And the Gibor is a strong man. So think Samson, okay? And, 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 and other great Jewish leaders are 
almost supermen. I mean, they're more than human in terms of their abilities to crush and to defeat and this sort of thing. And it suits the mythological narrative. Is it true? I don't know. I mean, isn't it interesting? I mean, for example, that we look in terms of recent history, the Second World War, the First World War, going into the 19th century, uh, we tend to characterize it as strong men. So we think of Stalin and Mussolini and uh, Hitler and, and Churchill and Roosevelt. And we think of them as strong men. Um, now, th- they're not strong in the sense of they go around beating everybody up like Asterix and Obelix. That's not that. No, but, but they're intellectually strong. They, 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 have, they have power in, in a raw sense that they can corral, whereas, in fact, the Gibor is much more one that does really have the club and, club and the sword and can do this sort of thing. So, so it fits into that narrative. So, so, so did he really... Um, deflect blister balls with his foot? Uh, probably not. Mm-hmm. Um, but the point is, if you're going to wow a crowd around a campfire, it's much better to be able to tell those sorts of stories than say, he was an ordinary guy like you and me, but you know what? People liked him. <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, that, that, that seems a bit of a weak narrative, and I don't know that that's got necessarily the, 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 uh, the, the journey in it to travel for two and a half thousand years. Yeah, I, I see what you're saying. <clears throat> Shifting gears to an earlier mm. book that you've uh, written, uh, Marcus Agrippa, uh, mm. he's sort of a legendary name in Roman mm-hmm. history. Can you tell mm-hmm. us a little bit about that book? Uh, he probably is my favorite character from history, um, in, in part because uh, he's the man who was an enabler of other of great things. He was the best friend, I think, bar none, of the man we now know as Caesar Augustus. Um, he had known him as a childhood friend, probably in his early teens. And the trouble is, we don't actually know very much about his early life but what we have from from a, a couple of roman writers is that it was it was a troubled childhood which seems to suggest that, that there were either family troubles or maybe it was tied up with uh, the fact that there were that they were turbulent times that the 60s bc were quite turbulent and violent um and uh, the, these are the days where cicero is trying to defend the roman republic and caesar's rising and crassus and pompey and all these sorts of things so, so he's a young man growing up in this and he he finds if kinship and friendship in augustus who at that time um is only uh, a great nephew of Julius Caesar, and nobody knows he's going to be, you know, the number one man. But when Julius Caesar dies, he has a small group of friends around him, one of whom is Marcus Agrippa, and he's thought of as a a confidant. And what's really interesting is that we know the names of the other people in the group, and over the decades, there's only one man left standing, and it is Marcus Agrippa. He's there all the way through. Uh, so he's a man who's immensely trusted. He is the man who helps win the naval battles at Mili and Nolocus. So he defeats Sexus Pompey, who was the son of Pompey mm-hmm. the Great, who was the man who was sent by the Senate trying to defeat Julius Caesar and obviously didn't, didn't succeed. Um, he was also the man that beat Antony Cleopatra at Actium. So that's very important because that was the pivot point at which basically the man who will become Augustus is able to basically ascend above all mm-hmm. the other people and ultimately sweeps away Antony and Cleopatra. And in the years after that, he helps him with establishing his position in power. Uh, he establishes... Um, and rectifies a lot of wrongs. I mean, you've got to think that, that the Roman world had been through not one but two civil wars, um, and 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 people were exhausted. So, so what he did with Marcus Agrippa was really enact a lot of progressive legislation. He did great building programs. In fact, he did a lot of the things that Hadrian. Remember, I talked about Hadrian going around uh-huh. giving Milder. So, so Marcus Agrippa was doing that exactly a hundred years and more beyond before. And, and what I find fascinating about it, he's totally self-taught. He wasn't a natural naval commander, but somehow learned out to be one and beat, beat his enemies in three occasions that we know of. He was uh, charismatic to some degree, but very modest. I, would, I wouldn't say shy, but he was a man who um, didn't go around courting attention. In fact, there were occasions when he was so victorious, he was entitled to have what are called triumphs. 
but he declined them. And this was unheard of. Nobody declined to try it, but he did. He, he felt that this would actually put the spotlight on him, not on Augustus. And his role was always to be the number two. And what's fascinating is, is that the people that we think of as his um, family, in fact, what, what, what's, what's extraordinary, and I was trying to get to the root of this, is that um, Marcus Agrippa actually marries the daughter of uh, Augustus. And through him, or through her rather, she ha he has three boys. Mm -hmm. And he puts them up for adoption. He puts the first two, Caius looks up for adoption, and sees it, uh, actually adopts his two sons. I mean, who does this? Um, in fact, they die. Um, and in fact, the, part of the part of the mystique of this thing is understanding what on earth motivates a man to be that devoted, knowing that any to any particular moment in time, he could probably have actually taken over power for himself. But you know what, he decided that there was, there was good for him in being number two, rather than being number one. Mm -hmm. um, and, and what's fascinating to me is that everybody that goes to Rome will see the Pantheon and sees the name Marcus Agrippa right. outside the front of it. And, and I think it's, it, and that's why I, I begin the book in, in, in talking about looking at that building, asking the question, who is this man? And ending it by the conclusion that it's totally fitting that that building is the one of all the ones in ancient Rome that stands to near complete perfection. Now, ironically, that building is actually Hadrian's building, <laughs> but Hadrian was very careful to keep the name Marcus Agrippa on the front. In, in that way, Hadrian was very much a self-effacing, modest man. In other words, he wasn't at all. But when it came to rebuilding other people's buildings, he, he kept kept the original names on them. And um, I just find it fascinating that you know when um, he had fought naval battles and land battles and, and it helped re-embed really Augustus as the number one and actually helped in a way build what we call the Roman Empire, um, he, he went very quietly. And, and in fact, in 12 BC, when he died, Augustus realized exactly how his rule was really dependent on having this man. And in fact, what he then did was to look for another man and he picked his stepson, Tiberius, who was very yeah. like Marcus Agrippa. And he's the man I'm writing a book about right now because the other, he's the other great enigma. Um, another man that didn't really want power, but sort of had it thrust upon him and dealt with it. Well, that's the point of the book is different. How, how did you deal with it? But, but Marcus Agrippa is, is tremendously charismatic. Um, in fact, he was quite pro-Jewish. One of his best friends was Herod the Great. Um, in fact, they they uh, they spent great many times together, went on trips together, and um, you know there there the, were the lots of interesting people that he met during his lifetime. And um, you can imagine that 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 when Ag when Augustus left Rome, he often left Agrippa in charge, and when he came back, then Agrippa went off. So they had, they were a double act in, mm -hmm. in lots of sorts of ways. But it was always that Agrippa knew that the boss was Augustus. There was never any never any contacts on on that. Amazing history. <laughs> in, in Roman history, there's so much to learn. The current book, though, if you'd like to pick it up, is Bar Korkba, the Jew who defied Hadrian and challenged the might of Rome. Lindsay, thank you so much for being on the show today. Oh, it's really been my pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. Absolutely. That's it for this episode. Thanks again for joining me. Next time, author Walt Larimore will be here with an incredible World War II story in his new book, At First Light. Yeah, you know, my brothers and I growing up knew that he had been a soldier. We knew that he lost his leg in the war. And so, boy, he started pouring out these stories. And quite frankly, I don't know that my brothers and I believed him. But then when he passed away, we found uh, his military chest with 450 letters, three history books, his awards, signed autograph pictures from everyone from General Eisenhower to True Scott to Young to McGar and then began to put together, I think you're right, what is truly an incredible story. That's next time. And if you like what you hear, leave a review or a rating or just click the follow button. 
And be sure to check out our Point of the Spear YouTube channel with bonus video material plus full military history documentaries. There's tons to explore, and I hope you check it out. I'm Robert Child, and this has been Point of the Spear. Music licensed from audioblocks.com. Point of the Spear is produced by RSC Media Group.